The greatest sport in the world returns to its biggest stage. Fifty years after the beginning of equal prize money at Forest Hills, the best players in the world are once again in Queens to contest the season's final Grand Slam. Iga Swiatek won this event a year ago, but is her tenuous grasp of the number one ranking a sign of changing times? Meanwhile, Carlos Alcaraz is a two-time major champion, causing a major shakeup at the major tournaments. Can he win U.S. Open number two? Trips Tennis Talk welcomes you to our coverage of the 2023 United States Open Tennis Championships. Hey everyone, welcome to Trips Tennis Talk, the amateur podcast about professional tennis. Thank you for finding the pod. Thank you for downloading. This is a U.S. Open preview edition. Let's get right into it. Topic number one, the thing that you want to know most about, what is the tournament schedule and where can I watch it? Let's get into that right now. The 2023 United States Open begins on Monday, August 28th with first round action at 11 a.m. and night session action at 7 p.m. Those schedules for the day and night sessions will continue throughout most of the tournament. First round, August 28-29. Second round, August 30th and 31st. Third round, September 1st and 2nd. Fourth round, September 3rd and 4th. Quarterfinals on September 5th and 6th. The women's semifinals are at 7 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, September 7th. The men's semifinals are at 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern on Friday, September 8th. Women's final and men's final, 4 p.m. Saturday and Sunday, September 9th and 10th, respectively. And the tournament is going to be on the ESPN and ABC family of networks. So let's read from that press release now. First ever live coverage on ABC. ESPN's exclusive first ball to last ball coverage of the U.S. Open August 28th through September 10. Sports Center at the 2023 U.S. Open Sunday, August 27th at 4 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Dual Network primetime coverage on ESPN, ESPN2, August 29th and 30th. All 16 courts streaming live on ESPN+. Now here is the body of that press release. ESPN platforms will present exclusive coverage of the U.S. Open for the ninth consecutive year, beginning Monday, August 28, 2023. Studio coverage begins on ESPN Sunday, August 27th at 4 p.m. Eastern with a special 90-minute Sports Center at the U.S. Open preview show. More than 260 hours of coverage will air on ABC, ESPN, ESPN2, and ESPN Deportes, with over 550 main draw matches on ESPN Plus and ESPN3. For the first time ever, ABC will air the U.S. Open live with the round of 16 on Sunday, September 3rd. Dual network primetime coverage on August 29th and 30th includes action from Arthur Ashe Stadium on ESPN and from Louis Armstrong Stadium 
on ESPN2. ESPN Deportes will air 98 hours of play in Spanish, up 12 hours over last year, including the women's and men's semifinals and championships. Daily marathon coverage from all courts, first ball to last ball, will culminate with the women's singles championship on Saturday, September 9th, and the men's singles championship on Sunday, September 10th, both at 4 p.m. ET on ESPN, ESPN Plus, and ESPN Deportes. The ESPN app will be the all-in-one streaming home for the U.S. Open. Within the ESPN app, one, ESPN Plus and ESPN3 will combine to live stream all courts from first ball to last ball each day. Two, ESPN Plus coverage began with the qualifiers on August 22nd and will continue with all-day coverage in English and Spanish throughout the tournament, highlighted by simulcasts of the women's and men's semifinals and finals. On the ESPN app for Apple TV and Xbox, this is point three, ESPN has added expanded one-click multicast. The new feature automatically curates the top live events into one tile on the home screen, allowing fans to select watching up to four simultaneous live court feeds of the U.S. Open. And four, ESPN Plus is also the home for on-demand viewing of replays. For more TV and digital news coverage, you can check out ESPN.com, ESPNW.com, and ESPNDeportes.com. ESPN's U.S. Open promotional spot, quote, Blue, features Alicia Keys' Streets of New York. Conveyed through the streets of New York from native New Yorker Alicia Keys, the promotional spot, titled Blue, represents new energy and the evolution of tennis, from well-known legends to new star talent. The Blue promotional spots connect summertime in New York City and the U.S. Open's iconic courts, and branding. In terms of the ESPN tennis team, it is a list of familiar names. James Blake, Darren Cahill, Cliff Drysdale, Chris Everett, Mary Jo Fernandez, Chris Fowler, Brad Gilbert, Jason Goodall, Sam Gore, Luke Jensen, John McEnroe, Patrick McEnroe, Chris McKendry, Pam Shriver, Jeremy Shapp, Alexandra Stevenson, Renee Stubbs, and Carolyn Wozniacki. Um, not quite sure how up-to-date that page is because Wozniacki's not playing anymore, or she's not commentating anymore, but that's what it says. All right. And there's the daily schedule there, and that is all that the press release says. All right, so ESPN is your home for everything for the 2023 U.S. Open. One more thing I would like to read out. There was a nice profile about Andy Roddick in GQ in the last couple of days, and I would like to read that aloud now because I know that the people listening to this podcast Most of you guys probably will not take the time to click through and read the story on your own, just to be blunt. So in that case, I don't feel as bad about giving it away for free to people that wouldn't have seen it in the first place. 
So let's go ahead and, and examine this now. Um, the reason this is being written is because it's been 20 years since an American male has won a Grand Slam as of this U.S. Open after Andy Roddick's 2003 U.S. Open win. But let me read the article first, and then we can discuss. 20 years after winning the U.S. Open, Andy Roddick has thrown away his trophies and moved on with his life. But in a rare interview, the last American man to win a Grand Slam reflects on that historic triumph and all the pressure, fame, failure, love, and loss that came after. Andy Roddick's Open Era by Sean Manning for GQ Sports. This was originally published on August 24th, 2023. A few years ago, Andy Roddick threw, threw away nearly all of his trophies. I thought, I don't really need these, he tells me. Anyone who's in our house kind of knows what I did. We're sitting on the screened-in porch of his lodge-like getaway in Cashiers, North Carolina, a remote village in the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's a house that feels lived in. Shoes can stay on. Coasters are never mentioned. One of the few prizes he's kept, his runner-up platter from the 2006 U.S. Open, lies on the living room coffee table, repurposed as a drink caddy, its surface stained with cocktail glass rings. Roddick, soon to turn 41, is a big dude, 6'2", bordering on Burley. Dad bod has been mostly kept at bay by daily workouts, usually Peloton. He's wearing a t-shirt and shorts and a baseball hat from Sweeten's Cove, the Tennessee golf course and whiskey brand he co-owns with a group that includes Peyton Manning. His wife, the model and actress Brooklyn Decker, is on her way making the three-hour drive west from Charlotte their primary home. Their kids, seven-year-old son Hank and five-year-old daughter Stevie, are at day camp. It's just me and Roddick and the cat and Bob Costas the bulldog, who sniffs at our feet and waddles into the kitchen. The trophy he won at the 2003 U.S. Open is displayed even more inconspicuously than his runner-up platter, tucked into a corner of his Charlotte home office as if to say, that was just one phase of my life, and that phase is over. And yes, since 2012, when he abruptly announced his retirement on his 30th birthday, there have been other phases, other passions and pursuits. Fatherhood being the most obvious and important. His business ventures and philanthropy, his foray into TV commentating at Fox Sports for a time, and currently with the Tennis Channel, but that first phase can never truly end until another American man wins the U.S. Open, or any other major. Until then, he exists to most people as Andy Roddick, the last to do it. He downplays the significance of this status, citing how many American women have won majors over the past two decades. No one's benefited more from one win, he says, ever. Had an American man won the next year, you wouldn't be here. Yet, what's always made Roddick so compelling isn't the lone major he won, but the others he did not. The cruel timing of his career. Shortly after winning the Open, Roddick reached number one in the world. 
He stayed there for 13 weeks. Then they came, one after another, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. He would never reclaim the number one ranking or win another major, losing four finals to Federer, three at Wimbledon. Roddick has rarely spoken in depth about how those defeats affected him or what inspired his decision to retire so young or the brutal toll the game can take on players' mental health, a conversation other stars like Naomi Osaka and his friend Marty Fish have begun to normalize. Even at his 2017 Hall of Fame induction ceremony, he spent most of his speech not self-reflecting, but praising others who helped him along the way. In fact, Roddick has stayed so quiet for so long that last spring, on, as the 20th anniversary of his famous win neared, and I approached him with an interview request, Decker felt compelled to offer him some gentle advice. It's not the worst thing to remind people you're alive. Stephen Little remembers where he was that September Sunday in 2003, when Andy Roddick's life changed forever. How could he forget? It changed his life, too. It was early evening when the veteran London cabbie returned to his suburban home in Muswell Hill and turned on the television. You know that kid I picked up? He told his wife. He's made it to the U.S. Open final. Three months earlier, Little had been in the middle of his shift when he was hailed by a man he recognized, Brad Gilbert, Andre Agassi's former coach and one of tennis's great gurus. Little didn't recognize his companion. From his spot in the jump seat, Gilbert noticed the horse racing papers that Little kept in the car. Oh, you like a bet? Gilbert said. You'll want to have a bet on this young man here, because he's going to win Queens and Wimbledon. Gilbert first saw Andy Roddick play at the Los Angeles Forum in 2000, when he was a practice partner for the U.S. Davis Cup team starring Agassi. I couldn't believe how big he was serving for 17, Gilbert says of Roddick. Even Andre was like, who is this kid just crushing the serve? Soon, the media began to predict that Roddick would be the one to carry on the tradition of American men dominating Grand Slam tennis. We heard at every press conference, says James Blake, Roddick's friend and Davis Cup teammate. Are you the next Sampras? Is he the next Agassi? How are you guys going to fill those shoes? I took a chunk of it, but Andy took the real heat. Even Sampras himself had anointed him, telling W in April 2003, quote, Andy is the future. A few months later, having yet to make a major final and eager for progress, Roddick rang up Gilbert, who'd split with Agassi the year before. Andy couldn't have been any more different from Andre, Gilbert says. I could talk with Andre sometimes about strategy for three hours. Andy was about 10 to 20 seconds, and then it's like, mission impossible, this message will explode. He had so much testosterone. A few hours after Roddick's call, Gilbert was on a plane to London, where Roddick was tuning up for the grass court season. His first mandate concerned Roddick's less than intimidating attire. He was wearing this ridiculous orange visor, Gilbert said. I said, get a frickin' proper hat, a trucker hat, anything, but you will never wear a visor in my presence. <laughs> As I recount this to Roddick, he takes off his baseball hat to show his bald head. 
If I'd known it would have ended like this, he says, I would have worn the visor a lot longer. I texted Brad and was like, fuck you, man. You took away my best hair years. Despite their fashion differences, the two men quickly gelled. Brad was a coach who'd seen everything I was about to experience, says Roddick. He had seen Agassi, the hype machine, the complicated personality, and the confidence with which he spoke about what was going to happen. I don't know if he believed it, but it felt real. An emboldened Roddick won the, Cle- the Queen's Club tournament and made the semis at Wimbledon, losing to Federer, who was en route to his first Grand Slam title. But Roddick would barely lose, lose another match all summer, winning four hardcore events prior to the U.S. Open. Before that, though, he had to make it home. As he was packing up at his hotel, he started to panic. He couldn't find his passport. He wasn't sure what to do. He didn't know anyone in London who could help. Then he remembered Stephen Little. The cabbie had shared his number in case they needed another ride. Roddick called Little, who had indeed thrown a fiver on Roddick to win Queens and Wimbledon, and explained his dilemma. It was the weekend of July 4th, and the embassy wouldn't be open until Monday. Worried about Roddick spending a few days alone in London, Gilbert asked Little to look after him. And so the 20-year-old American and the 60-something Londoner ate meals together, went to museums, listened to music. We made quite an odd couple walking around the streets, Little recalls. At the airport, new passport secured, Roddick suggested the possibility of hiring him again next year. At the U.S. Open, Roddick continued to roll, dropping only one set before the semis. His opponent was Argentina's David Nalbandian, who Roddick had dominated earlier that summer. This time wasn't so easy. Roddick lost the first two sets, then saved a third set match point. Crowd gets really loud, he recalls. We were able to turn it. Crucially, he doesn't say, I was able to turn it. He says, we were able to turn it. Tennis was never an individual sport for Roddick. He always saw himself as part of a team, almost like an F1 driver. It kind of is the same, he says. It just doesn't get treated the same. You see a pit crew. You don't see the stuff we're doing behind the scenes. That includes the work ATP trainer Doug Spreen did on him later that night. A series of blisters had formed on the ball of Roddick's right foot. For an hour in Roddick's, Roddick's Times Square hotel room, Spreen worked with a scalpel while Gilbert talked strategy for the final. Both Spreen's treatment and Gilbert's tactics were sound. Only once did uh, only once during his straight-set route of Spain's Juan Carlos Ferrero was Roddick nervous. I'm one point away from serving for it. He had a second serve, and I was thinking to myself, just double fault. And he double faulted. I couldn't breathe on the next switchover. I'm like, this is it. It's yours now. I think I fired three or four aces, just unconscious. After that final ace, as he joyously fell to one knee, he thought of his mom, Blanche. She and Roddick's dad, Jerry, were there in the stadium, but he didn't know where. His parents never sat in his box. Roddick recalls, I was like, my mom's somewhere and she's thinking, of all those rides to practice, that has to be worth it to her now if it wasn't before. 
Pete Sampras had announced his retirement at that year's Open, and Roddick had won it, as storybook as the torch passing could be. Afterward, he celebrated at a Manhattan restaurant with his family, friends, and longtime agent Ken Meyerson. It was just this room full of appreciation, says Roddick, and we're all just going to get hammered because God knows if this ever happens again. I mean, we got hammered, Gilbert says with a laugh. After dinner, some of, some of the group headed to a club. We took the trophy and were drinking out of it, says Roddick. Then his eyes widened with a memory. And Capriotti showed up out of nowhere. I was like, he mimes handing the trophy to the three-time Grand Slam winner. You know what to do with this. I haven't done this before. The party went into the early hours Monday until Gilbert reminded Roddick he had to make the rounds on the morning shows. He almost forgot about that, says Gilbert. Back in Muswell Hill, Stephen Little watched the entire match. I said to my wife, that's the last I ever hear from him. He's not going to ring a London taxi driver now. He's a U.S. Open winner. The first thing Roddick did after he finished his press the next morning was fly to Austin and buy a house. He'd lived there as a child before the family relocated to Florida for its superior tennis training facilities and always wanted to get back. A month or two after he moved in, his father came to visit. He went nuts because my room was a mess, Roddick recalled. I go, what is wrong? Can you just be okay with things? Jerry, Jerry Roddick had labor, labored from a young age on the family's Wisconsin dairy farm, served in the army, and made a career as a Jiffy Lube franchisee. He instilled in Andy a devout work ethic, disdain for excuses, and intolerance for self-pity. But his temperament wasn't always easy to deal with. Such encounters would have been more frequent if not for Ken Meyerson, who signed Roddick when he was 17 and became a kind of buffer between the player and his father. Ken ran a lot of interference that I didn't even know about, says Roddick. My dad's pissed about something? I never hear about it. Ken took a lot of bullets. Meyerson was an unusual agent for a sport so heavy on decorum. South Beach mixed with sports agent, says Roddick. Slicked back hair, permatan, sockless loafer, a disgusting lack of sock at any moment. He's the prototypical agent who walks in, yo baby, what's up? But underneath the shtick, that fucking guy would have begged, borrowed, stolen. He would be emotional about matches I lost that I was not emotional about. Meyerson didn't have to do much begging after Roddick won the Open. The opportunities seemed endless. You're 21 and you're like, this is awesome, I'm super famous, Roddick says. There's a certain amount of like, oh, I hate being famous, but then you go to the restaurant where everyone is. Like, shut up, you don't actually hate it. Here's how famous Andy Roddick was at that time. He was in a Got Milk ad. People posted fan fiction about him online, and he became, and remains, only the second tennis player after Chris Everett to host SNL. He was the paragon of an early aughts bro. His favorite movie was American Pie, he loved Dave Matthews Band, and he shopped at Abercrombie & Fitch. 
He also looked like an Abercrombie model, and the typical magazine photo shoot featured him shirtless with a suggestive headline, Hot Rotic, in the case of the April 2003 W feature. Even SNL couldn't resist such objectification, having him play a bare-chested gynecologist in one sketch. That was the culture then, says Brooklyn Decker. It was so wildly inappropriate, and we just accepted it. If you wanted to work and get to a place where you could call your shots, you had to do things that were uncomfortable. Roddick hated photo shoots, but with Meyerson's tutelage, he understood they could help land big brand deals that would set him up for the rest of his career. Upon first turning pro, he had signed with Reebok, a company that had serious cachet. It was Iverson and Jay-Z, Roddick says. Alan Iverson, probably there. When his contract came up for renewal in 2005, Roddick says he and Meyerson had a, quote, handshake deal with Reebok CEO Paul Fireman with terms agreed upon, but the deadline for a signed contract kept getting extended. Roddick eventually found out that Reebok was in the process of being sold to Adidas, Adidas. He surmises that the parent company didn't want to sign any big new contracts. At the time, Reebok's chief marketing officer stated, As our contract came to a close, and after carefully considering what is in the best interest of our business, Reebok has elected not to continue this partnership. Within a couple of weeks, Meyerson negotiated a new deal with Lacoste. That was the big payday, Roddick says. I barely did anything that wasn't required contractually ever again. Lacoste's tennis-specific heritage was especially appealing to Roddick, who considered it his mission to make the game more mainstream in the U.S., just as his idols once had. These guys, Connors, McEnroe, Chang, Courier, Andre, Pete, they were everything to me. And so it's like, it's on you. Don't fuck up what they built. If I couldn't replace their tennis, I could somehow keep people in the building. Roddick's celebrity was turbocharged when he started dating singer and actress Mandy Moore, their nearly two-year relationship unfolding amid the early aughts gossip site boom. In a 2004 story in Teen Vogue, Moore described how she and Roddick were often treated by the paparazzi. He was in town and we were having dinner with friends, and some guy chased us clear out of the restaurant. We sat home for the rest of his stay. Jeff Lau, who met Roddick when they were kids in Austin and remains a close friend, recalls the frenzy of that time. Entourage is fun to watch because I've been in the black car when girls were trying to pry their way in. There were some of the most beautiful girls I had ever seen who were throwing themselves at him, and he was unaffected. <laughs> one, one difference between Roddick's life and Entourage his turtle was a mid-60s London cabbie. Not only did Roddick continue to hire Stephen Little during grass court season, he rented a bigger house at Wimbledon so that Little could have a bedroom, got him a Wimbledon grounds pass, and hired his son Paul to work for him and Decker in America. Such a down-to-earth mentality ensured Roddick was never at risk of losing himself to celebrity and all its temptations. That and the work ethic he inherited from his father. The work was non-negotiable, he says. I never viewed myself on the same level ability-wise as Roger, so I always had this insecurity where, if it got away from me... Roger. Sooner or later, 
our conversation always circles back to Roger. I love Roger, Roddick says. I do. I love him as a human being. But after so many losses to Federer, 21 in 24 matches, Roddick admits that he developed an insecurity. I didn't show up at the track every morning like, Fuck Roger, he says. To me, it was like the sky. You're not always looking at it, but you know it's there. I had long seen this as the central drama of Roddick's story, the torment of being so thwarted by timing and circumstance. You're Christopher Marlowe, you're feeling pretty good, and then here comes this Shakespeare guy. Surely he would have had at least five majors if he played a few years earlier, says Jim Courier. But Roddick's friend Jeff Lau sees it differently. It's sad that people view him as being at the wrong time in the tennis cycle. He wouldn't have had it any other way. Lau is referring to Roddick's infamous competitiveness. Everyone who knows Roddick has a story. Dean Goldfein, who succeeded Gilbert as Roddick's coach in 2005, remembers their cutthroat Scrabble games. He memorized, like, every three-letter word that had Z in it, Goldfein says. It got to the point where you basically couldn't beat him. Roddick clarifies. Every two-letter word with, with potential for high point value. Za, Z, XI. Lance Hooten, Roddick's former conditioning coach, remembers how they'd argue over picking all NBA teams. Four days later, we'd be in a taxi in Rome or somewhere, says Hooten, and he goes, I can't fucking believe you chose Tony Parker over Steve Nash. His friend Jen Hodge recalls a pickleball game on a trip to the Bahamas to celebrate Roddick's 40th birthday. Three hours later, I've got sweat pouring off me in blisters, she says. I thought we'd go to a resort and have cocktails. Why did I think that? For a diehard competitor like Roddick, what bigger challenge was there than trying to beat Federer and Nadal and Djokovic? Though, as Roddick admits, maybe it went from a challenge to obsession at some point. That point can be traced to when he sought out Hooten, who'd worked with Heisman winner Ricky Williams at the University of Texas. In Austin, during Roddick's brief off-season, they'd hit it seven days a week. Track work, court drills, practice sets, weight room. Some days they'd even put on cleats and do football drills. But one thing he did not mess with was his serve. Not since he first messed with it himself. Am I, do I, do I have it here? I think I got it. Um, I unplugged my microphone there by accident. Um, all right, I'm going to actually stop it here. I'll be back in a moment to continue this article. Check, check, check. All right, continuing with the Andy Roddick article. That point... But one thing he did not mess with was his serve. Not since he first messed with it himself, back when he was 16, the day he got so pissed in practice that he reared back in this funky half motion, just trying to hit the ball as hard as he could, and it went in. From then on, Roddick told every coach he worked with, the serve is off limits. Even when I was playing, says Sam Query, a Roddick contemporary who reached number 11 in the world, I'd peek my head out of the tunnel and watch him serve a handful of games. Maybe he's going to hit 140 today. 
every serve you'd look at the radar gun. Hooten describes it as like a cannon being fired. Whenever he got lost on a huge complex of practice courts, Roddick could always tell or Hooten could always tell where Roddick was playing by the sound of the boom. But Roddick knew his serve alone was no longer enough. He saw the game changing. Court surfaces were slowing down. New racket strings made it easier for players to generate more spin and, and hit passing shots. I wanted it to be a Tyson fight, Roddick says. Basically walk up and punch you in the face. Now everyone was Holyfield, everyone was moving. I didn't need a mathematician to realize I was number one, then I was number two, then I was number three. I'm like, that's not the right trajectory. Can we reverse engineer me? And we tried hard. In 2006, he made yet another unconventional move, hiring a coach who had never coached before, his idol Jimmy Connors. He had been gone 15 years, Roddick says of the eight-time Grand Slam winner, who had all but disappeared from the tennis world in the mid-90s. He's like a recluse, right? He didn't know the players, but he knew technique, knew footwork. Jimmy, for that moment in time, was huge. When Roddick began working with Connors, his world ranking was number 10. In the year and a half they were together, it got as high as number 3. But a second slam remained elusive. Connors could not be reached for comment, but his investment in Roddick's success is, a clear, is clear from a story Stephen Little tells. After Roddick lost in the 2007 Wimbledon quarterfinals, Little came across Connors near the locker rooms. Jimmy was just sitting there, and he was crying his eyes out. He was convinced he could make Andy win Wimbledon. He believed in him. About an hour into our conversation, Decker finally pulls into the driveway and, and enters the house. She has recently cut her hair into a bob, which makes her warm smile even more prominent as she shakes my hand. Roddick first fell for that smile in late 2006 when seeing Decker a newly minted Sports Illustrated swimsuit model, host a football show on the magazine's website. He had his attorney call her agent, which she thought was shady. The only thing I will say in my defense, Roddick says, is I didn't do it all the time. The shooting of the shot was a one-time thing. Several months passed. Decker's modeling career was taking off, but she was lonely living in New York with few friends. She googled Roddick and watched his acerbic press conference from the recent 2007 Australian Open. She liked his humor. They talked on the phone for weeks before he came to New York for their first date. We had breakfast the next morning, she recalls. We did not spend the night together. Soon she was taking a train to D.C. to watch him play. I was nervous for everything but the playing, Roddick says of that day. It wasn't only the first time Decker saw him play, it was the first time she'd ever seen live tennis. Tennis to me felt like such an off-limits rich person sport, and so to see him breaking rackets, foul-mouthed, this renegade approach you would take sometimes, I always found it really funny, because it seemed to shake up the rigid world that tennis was. I thought he was very sexy when I saw him play. She used to like it when I yelled at umpires, Roddick says. Less than a year after they met, while Roddick was playing at Indian Wells, he proposed in their hotel room, struggling on his tendonitis-riddled knee, holding the ring in one hand and in the other a sprig of holly he'd snapped off a bush. Roddick was 25, Decker 20. 
as he recalls, I went from, I don't think I'm going to get in a serious relationship forever, and then we were engaged in like six months, and then we really got to know each other. They were married in April 2009. Both so focused on their careers and traveling constantly, they'd sometimes go two months without seeing each other. If we hadn't actually made that commitment, Roddick reflects, I don't know that we'd get through that. I don't know if she'd tell you the full truth because she knows I don't talk about stuff, but... But but Decker does tell me. She too, she too isn't sure their relationship would have lasted without the conclusiveness of marriage. That and her husband's ego. It can get in the way of emotional revolution, she says, especially in men, but ego can also be a wonderful thing. With our relationship, I think that ego and insecurity about failing, and failing publicly, was very much a motivation to put our heads together and figure this out. Roddick admits he could be terrible to be around during tournaments, hyper-focused as he was. And Wimbledon was when Andy's nerves and the general tension was at its highest, says Decker, because that was the one that he really wanted. But 2009 felt different. The mood was more relaxed. Roddick had hired John McEnroe's former coach, Larry Stefanke, who helped him drop weight and improve his footwork. I remember Brooke and Larry just laughing every night over a glass of wine, says Roddick. It was a great vibe. The night before the final against Federer, Stefanke gave Roddick a pep talk in the backyard of their rental house. You've got to allow yourself to free up and play. It's not time to play careful. I know you've had your challenges. You don't have to be better than him every day. You're playing well enough to beat him. As Roddick listened, he thought, He's not giving the Gipper speech. He actually believes what he's saying. It was so thrilling, Decker says of her husband's performance that day, because he was playing so beautifully. <sighs> Beautiful is a word more often associated with Federer's game than Roddick's. But he indeed played with a surpassing grace, holding serve the entire match right up until the very last game. Federer once again prevailed, winning the fifth set 16-14, and thereby breaking Pete Sampras' record of 14 Grand Slam titles. As the two men sat waiting for the trophy ceremony to start, the crowd chanted, Roger, Roger, Roger. Once that died down, they did something unexpected, especially for the typically restrained Brits. Roddick, Roddick, Roddick. Hat turned backward, the anguish plainly visible on his face, he stood up and raised his hand. In his on-court interview, Roddick congratulated Federer, joked to Sampras, who was sitting in the royal box about failing to hold him off, saluted the other former champions in attendance, and expressed his hope that one day his name would join theirs as a Wimbledon champion. He was, in that instant, a model of sportsmanship, the gesture among the most impressive things Roddick has ever done on the tennis court. When I tell him this, he quickly dismisses the compliment. It's not about me in that moment. Pete doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't leave his living room. And he made the trip. You gotta have a little respect for history. Still, he was distraught. I don't think that people got the true sense of how much his heart was ripped out that day, says trainer Doug Spreen, 
who joined Roddick's team full-time after the 2003 U.S. Open. He was back in the shower for 20 minutes, just sitting there with water running down him. Spreen was sitting in the locker room when Federer took a seat next to him. He said, I feel really bad for you guys, and I feel really bad for Andy. I hope he gets this one time. I think Roger realized on that day that it wasn't right to have a big celebration, and his words when he sat down next to me were, Spreen pauses, crying. He didn't need to do that, and it was heartfelt. By the time Roddick emerged from the locker room, the All England Club was nearly empty. Decker was in tears waiting for her husband. He said, let's go home, she recalls. We'll talk about it when we get home. He was the one who was calming me down. Stephen Little picked up pizzas and beers and was back at the house with the rest of his team, including his son Paul, Spreen, and Stefanki, when Roddick and Decker arrived. He looked exhausted, says Paul Little, but the first thing he said to us was sorry. He then went to Stephen Little, who was crying, and gave him a big hug. Little cries again as he recalls the embrace. It's not a thing that grown men do, he says. I was sad for me, Roddick says, but I was sad for them. I was the only chance that Stephen Little had of winning Wimbledon, and I know he hurt, and the people there hurt, as much as I did in that moment. Roddick pauses. I remember this part fucked me up during my Hall of Fame speech. I didn't have kids while I was playing, and then I did by the time the Hall of Fame comes around, and I'm like, these grown-ass men gave up how many parts of their lives and children's lives to try and win a tennis tournament? I knew the sacrifice that was being made, but you can know something and you can also not understand it fully until later. Before returning to Austin, he and Decker stopped for a few days in New York. Roddick popped into the Apple Store in Soho and was surprised by how many people approached him. Every person in the store was like, Andy, man, tough one, as if we knew each other. And it was awesome. I'm like, oh my god, this has been the water cooler conversation for like three days. Roddick had achieved what he'd long sought out to do. He'd expanded the game's audience. And in the effort and grace he displayed, he'd also changed his public image. He said that he felt like he was sort of this brash, sharp-tongued tennis player, says Decker, and then overnight he turned into the everyman's tennis player. But would he have traded that for the title? Probably, Roddick says, because I would like to think that I could get over myself enough to build that bridge with the fans anyway. Had I won Wimbledon, I don't think I would have one single regret. I'm not disappointed I didn't win 10 slams. I'm disappointed I didn't win Wimbledon. You can have seven of them. I just wanted one. Roddick apologizes. He has to pause our conversation for a few minutes so he can zoom into the tennis channel to provide some commentary. He leads me into the living room, where the network is playing on the TV above the fireplace. Just a few days ago, Francis Tiafo joined Taylor Fritz in the top ten, the first time two Americans have been in that group in more than a decade, Roddick likes the chances of this new U.S. generation. There is a healthy jealousy between the players, he says. They're not all just slapping each other on the back. They want to be better than the other guy. They actually talk about winning slams. And who would he pick as the one to do it? The one to break American men's 20-year curse. 
I don't know, he says. This isn't a cop-out. I would probably lie to you if I had a strong feeling, because I wouldn't want one guy to get the spotlight and have to deal with that. But I honestly don't know that one is head and shoulders above. And what if one of them asked him to coach, to do what Connors did for him? The kids would have to be grown up to where if I left for two weeks, they wouldn't really notice I was gone, he says. So that's ten years away. If there are still no winners, and there's a guy you can help, and maybe you break your own curse, that'd be interesting. I want someone to do it. It's not like he doesn't have enough to do without coaching. He recently co-founded yet another business, a virtual healthcare company called ViewFi. And of course, there's the Andy Roddick Foundation, which he started at 17, inspired by Agassiz's nonprofit. Since its inception, it's helped thousands of lower-income Austin kids and their families in recent years through after-school and summer programs. In the beginning, the foundation merely funneled cash to organizations that do the on-the-ground work, but Roddick wanted to become more than a middleman, so he asked his friend Jeff Lau to move back to Austin and get involved. After graduating from West Point and serving in Iraq, he learned of Roddick's U.S. Open win from a government-issued laptop at Camp Moleskinner in East Baghdad. Lau got a job on Wall Street and an MBA from Harvard Business School. I warned Andy, if I do this for you, I'm not fucking around. There are real opportunity costs for me to do this. You're rich, you're famous, you've got an amazing wife. You don't have to do this. Are you sure? Roddick was sure. So they reinvented it, right down to the office space, bypassing the fancy areas of downtown Austin for a large plot on the east side of town where most of their work would be directed. It sent a message that we were for real, Lau says. The headquarters remain there today, and Roddick is just as involved as ever. Lau's question all those years ago seems just as pertinent now. He doesn't have to do all this. He doesn't have to be this busy. So why? When will it be enough? I drive a Chrysler Pacifica, Roddick responds. Enough happened a long time ago. I'm certainly not going to sit around for the next 20 years. I need something to tick. That old obsessiveness, it remained even in the last few years of his career. Lance, uh, Lance Hooten remembers a group workout that ended with 4x100 meter relay races. Andy is one of the anchors. On the backstretch, the other anchors got a little bit of a lead. Andy's closing. Five meters from the finish line, he fucking dives. He hits and rolls. He's missing probably half the skin on one of his legs and on his arms. Roddick admits his intensity could be a detriment. I always operated out of, if I'm not as talented as these guys, there's no chance they can win the day as far as training or effort. If I could go back and change one thing in my career, it would be to do less of that shit. Even at the time, he wished he could feel less tortured. I remember my last year on tour, Roddick says. I see this guy floating around and he's like number 25 in the world. He's the happiest guy I've ever seen. And I'm just like, I just want one more look at the basket. I'll do anything. And then there's relief when you win, not out-and-out -out joy. The prospect of joy was also diminished by loss. In October 2011, Ken Meyerson died of a heart attack in his sleep at the age of 48. Two weeks later, Roddick found himself in the locker room at a tournament in Switzerland, having the biggest emotional breakdown of his career. 
He would have been here at this shitty-ass tournament at the end of the year when no other agents come, Roddick remembered. Jesus, Jesus, Andy. Basel's not that bad, is it? He would have been here doing something ridiculous, and I just lost it. I was physically incapable of keeping my body still. Was that why he retired the following year? I don't know, Roddick says. He probably took some of my love of the game with him. He also felt a certain futility, a needling awareness of the cruel moniker One Slam Wonder. I'm like, fuck, I won 32 times, Roddick says. I won two out of my last four or five tournaments. What would be a defining moment in someone's career? It doesn't matter if I win ten more of them. If it's not a major, it would affect people's perception zero. Decker recalls that the last two years of Roddick's career were different. He was not as happy playing, she says. He became significantly less patient with his injuries. He was irritable, and I naively thought, I married this man and now he's changing. What's going on here? He was still young, but often he was acting like an old man. What happened to the guy who'd snapped off that sprig of holly? Where was that, Andy? And when he retired, Decker says, with a snap of her fingers, it was like a light switched on in him, and he became the person who I knew and fell in love with. And after some time, I realized, oh, this is a man who was suffering and really grappling with the end of his career and the end of that identity. By the time Roddick finishes his tennis channel duties, Decker has left to pick up the kids. We head back to the porch, a light rain pattering the trees. He hadn't planned it. That morning of his 30th birthday in August 2012, heading into the second round of the U.S. Open, Decker had left their Manhattan hotel for work. Roddick texted her to come back. He told her he was going to retire and announce it that day. Are you sure this is what you want to do? Asked Decker, though she knew he was sure as soon as he said it. I went to bed an active tennis player, Roddick says, and when I woke up, I was going to retire. Even for Roddick's last match in the fourth round, his parents didn't sit in his box. But for the first time at any U.S. Open, he knew where they were. So he was able to look at them during his post-match speech, his voice breaking as he thanked them for giving him every opportunity. One final thought, said, said Roddick. I'd like to say thank you to someone who's not with us anymore. He tilted his head back and looked out of Arthur Ashe Stadium. To Ken Meyerson, thank you for everything. I love you. Two years later, Jerry Roddick died of a heart attack just a couple weeks before Andy turned 32. Andy has endured, for someone his age, a pretty significant level of loss and death, says Decker. These big losses, he said, mentor, father, that's very much a part of who he is. When I ask him about these losses, Roddick deflects with a quip. I guess if there were, was a joke to be made, he says, it's after 13 years of their relationship, my dad and Ken both had heart attacks. But then he grows somber. I hope Ken knows that I was loyal to him as he was to me. He says, I hope he knows that I wouldn't have left no matter what. I don't know if I expressed that. The part that bothers me the most is not knowing how our relationship would have manifested. That's the part I hate. He has a better sense for how his relationship with his dad would have turned out. I think I would have been a, an easier adult to deal with than a young adult to deal with, Roddick says, and I think he would have been a better grandfather to deal with than father.
He pauses. Maybe I just want it to be that way. I don't know. I regret not being able to have conversations with my father after I was a father. Now that he has kids, Roddick has a better appreciation of his dad's parenting style. It wasn't a control thing, he says. It was just a worry thing. He was just so protective. I don't agree with his methods, but I now understand them. Yet no matter how much we might try to differentiate ourselves from our parents, we are always inescapably their children. I remember a story his friend Jen Hodge told me about Roddick's son learning to ride a bike. Hank said to him, Dad, I just need to work harder and I'll be better. Andy was like, oh my god, no one has ever spoken words that relate to me more. I'm tempted to ask Roddick about this anecdote but refrain. The children are home and eager to see their father. On my way out, they politely shake my hand. Hank tells me his favorite basketball team is the Hornets. Stevie shows off her croc charms. Decker hugs me goodbye. Andy Roddick leaves his family standing in the soft glow of the doorway and walks me to my car in the drizzling rain. Thanks for coming, he says as dusk creeps across the sky. I know it's not an easy place to get to. All right, there you go. That is the story. Phew, that is a long one. That took much longer than I thought it would. Um, I definitely don't have 40 minutes of commentary to offer about Andy Roddick. Just a couple thoughts here. Many of the things that Roddick was criticized for at the time seem quaint today, like hitting a ball out of a stadium in a match against Philip Kohlschreiber. Like, who cares by the modern standards? Andy Roddick was heavily criticized by the media in my early days in tennis. He was not a fan favorite in 2008, 2009, 2010. But considering that nobody has surpassed him since then, perhaps we were a little harsh on Andy Roddick, and perhaps we should have been more grateful for his sustained excellence at the top of the game. And I include myself in that. Even my teenage self perhaps should have uh, appreciated him more. But as of now, recording this on August 25th, 2023, he's the most recent man to win a major in singles 20 years ago, 2003. He's the most recent man to make a Grand Slam final 2009, 14 years ago. That's a long time. It's a generation. And American boys today, they don't pick tennis. They pick football and basketball because that is where the fame and the money is. American women pick tennis because that is where the fame and money is for American female athletes. But for the men's tennis... It's a European sport and has been so for the last two decades. That's just the way it is. And it's a, it is definitely a massive failing on the part of the USTA to grow the American game. But the reality of the European dominance is also something to be reckoned with, and that cannot be ignored either. It's nice to see Roddick reemerge in his tennis channel work. I do hope that he stays a part of the game because Sampras is out, Agassi is out, Connors is out, 
I mean, the only guy that's advocating for American tennis from the old school is John frickin' McEnroe. That's the best we can do. So I'm glad that Roddick is sort of being another voice in that space. And uh, hope he can continue to do that. All right. Now I would like to play some player audio and after that make some predictions. So uh, let's listen to some player audio now. First up, let's hear from Western and Southern Open champion Coco Goff. Yeah, August has been a great, great month for me. Obviously, it did well in D.C. and then even in Montreal and and, the, and obviously Cincinnati. It's been a great couple of weeks for me, and I'm really excited to go into the rest of this month and hopefully a little bit into September as well. Okay, very good. Thank you. Hey, Coco. Chris Otto, USOpen.org. Um, in Cincinnati, you talked a little bit about the difference in your game not being so different after all, but it was just a matter of you executing. And I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit on what has enabled you to hit this high level of execution in, in the month of August. I think just confidence and um, trusting myself. I think I trust the work that I've done in practice, and you know I hope that it can continue to translate into matches. So I think just trusting myself. Obviously, you know I have the new team around me, so seeing a different perspective can sometimes just change things completely. So I think I have a new perspective and I'm enjoying it a lot. Okay, Andrew, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Andrew Jones from ESPN and Escape. Uh, first, I want to ask you, because um, I've talked to Sydney McLaughlin a few mm -hmm. times this year and about the great commercial that you had with New Balance about the now she says you're a great person. So you talk about that bond with her from meeting her at the Open last year. Yeah. And um, has um, BG given you like any nickname mm -hmm. and have you tried to sway him to share for Kawhi Leonard <laughs> more than his Warriors? Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, meeting Sydney, I met her yeah at the Open and obviously she's a really nice person. I think she comes off as very genuine. And that was like only for a brief second, to be honest, because it was right after my match. Um, um, but then obviously I got to know with her a lot more when we filmed that. We spent a long day on the set and I was learning about her life and she was learning about mine and uh, it was a lot of similarities and yeah, she's an incredible athlete and uh, one of the greatest uh, athletes on the track for a reason. And yeah, BG, uh, he hasn't really given me any nicknames, but he has a lot of nicknames for other people um, or like or like shots and, and different tennis shots and everything. Um, he might have, yeah, I don't think he's ever called me anything. And if he has, I didn't pay attention to it. Uh, but yeah, he has a lot of unique stuff. I'm learning like some of the, sh the shots, like sometimes he'll call like like the kick slice serve. He'll be like, I want a KS right now. And like, I didn't know what that meant at first. So uh, now I know what it means. But yeah, he hasn't given me any any crap about Kawhi or anything yet. Uh, Levin Cabas from Sportico. It's obviously the 50th anniversary of Equal Pay at the US Open. Um, there are still lots of existing inequities. Uh, what changes would, would you most like to see to reduce those inequities? Yeah, I mean, I think for the U.S. Open, first the uh, 50th anniversary, um, they're having the gala tonight, so I'm going, so I'm really happy to be a part of that. And yeah, there's obviously a lot of inequities when it comes to prize money, more on the 1,000 and 500 and 250 level. And they have a plan in place from what I told. I think it's like a 10-year plan to kind of improve um, that, si that situation. But I definitely think that a lot of it needs to be improved, especially in these events. I mean, at least 
when I the, that play really paid attention this summer. Um, just the crowd at you know the five hundred and thousand events that I've played um, where it was combined, and I will say like at least my matches were like pretty much more crowded or the same crowded as some of the top seeds on the men's side. So I don't think it's a attraction issue on you know obviously in some tournaments yes, but um, especially in like the thousand events I don't think it's necessarily an attraction issue. So I think it just we have a long ways to go, but I am proud to uh, say that where we are now, um, especially in the Grand Slams. Just a reminder, no shooting from the, from the seats, please. Thank you very much. Court. Uh, Coco, Courtney uh, Wynn-WTA. Uh, how do you contrast or compare how you feel going into this Open to the last few that you've played, given what you've done in August? Uh, I think I'm obviously a lot more confident, and I have, you know, I don't I don't know. I think the mindset is different. I think it's having like that first round loss in Wimbledon shows that it wasn't really as bad as it could happen. So I'm not going into this tournament worried if I lose early or, or not. I can't really control that result. So I think now I'm going in with a lot more confidence and I feel like, you know, no matter the scoreline in the match, I can be able to problem solve and troubleshoot my way out. Um, so I think that, you know, I don't have, to, and I know I can win matches not playing my best game now. I think I wasn't playing my best in every single match in DC and Cincinnati is impossible, but uh, I do think that I feel much more confident in my B or C game. Brian. Hey, Coco. Brian Lewis, New York Post. Uh, tangentially related to the equal pay question, I'm curious, WTA finals could conceivably be going to Saudi Arabia. I'm curious your thoughts on that matter, considering the treatment of women there. Yeah, um, I mean, to be honest, we don't know much about it as players, and it, right now it's just a rumor, so I don't know what's going to happen. I saw the you know, the whole discourse going on, on Twitter. Um, so I don't really have a lot of information regarding that. And I'd rather, you know, not speak on it until it's set in stone. Okay. Willie. Willie Weinbaum from ESPN. Hi, Coco. You, you've spoken a lot after defeats about learning from defeats. What about learning from victories? What has helped you learn from victories, perhaps, that you've been able to build on those? Yeah, um, I think I learned a lot over this last couple of weeks, more so on my wins, I think, than I have in the past. I think that, um, you know, especially in that final against uh, Muchova, you know, I wasn't playing my best tennis, but I was still able to win that match and, and win it, you know, in, in straight sets. So I think the most I've learned over the course of the these this summer is that I don't have to play a plus tennis to win um, and obviously going into the match you hope to play the best tennis that you can play but it's not possible all the time so I think I have much more confidence now um, in other aspects of my game maybe if my serve isn't working then I have confidence in my ground strokes or vice versa uh, I think I'm more confident in being able to problem solve. And I think that just comes with experience too. Sometimes I think when I wasn't playing my best tennis or wasn't playing great, I kind of would shut down a little bit mentally. But now I think I'm just figuring out as I go. Darrell Johnson rolling out. Uh, I spoke to you yesterday at the New Balance event, but wanted to speak to you more outside of endorsements. What are some of your business endeavors, your business aspirations? Yeah, um, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. I haven't really found what I'm quite passionate in outside of tennis, to be honest. I mean, I really do love fashion and I love uh, makeup and I love that 
type of thing. And I just haven't really thought about how I would build that into a brand per se. Um, but I think it just comes with growth. I mean, I'm at the age right now where I'm really trying to find myself, I guess, outside of tennis, um, because I do want to, you know, venture out into other things. I just haven't found, you know, what really speaks to me, because usually growing up, I've always been the person to hyper fixate on hobbies and then move on after like a month on one thing. So I'm really trying to find something that sticks. And I think with tennis being so much a part of my life, it's sometimes hard to find passion in other things, to be honest. Hi, Coco, David Law from the Tennis Podcast. Um, you mentioned the work that you've put in and the new team that you've you've got over this summer. Um, I just wonder, since Wimbledon, what messages have you had from your new team and mm -hmm. Brad in particular that maybe you haven't had before? Um, yeah, I think for me with uh, Para, well with BG, I mean it's just really. You know, I think I have a lot more confidence in my game and, you know, people can say, you know, you play good or or the opposite. But I think hearing it from someone who's probably seen countless of my matches, I don't know how many he's maybe commentated on, but for sure watched countless of my matches and worked with some of the best players in the game. I think you just really believe it in the way that he says it. Sometimes it's not always about the message. I don't think the message has changed for me. It's more about how the message was relayed to me. And I think hearing that from his perspective just helps me a lot. And he's a very relaxed guy. Like he's very relaxed. Um, you know, sometimes I'll be practicing and it'll maybe practice points with another player and it's like 30 all or deuce and he'll like say something completely random like a joke or something. And uh, it's just little things like that that just made me realize that, you know, tennis is serious, but it's not as serious as sometimes my head makes it out to be. And I really should enjoy it out there. And then Para, he's the same way. I think, you know, he's a little bit more um, into the game sometimes, but I think, um, like being around Brad and learning, I think we've just learned a lot just having fun and I, I think the last couple of weeks I've had fun um, and the wins and the losses even in that match against Jess where it was five on a third and I got broken I was still like enjoying the match and having fun whereas other circumstances I would be stressed out so I think he's really gotten me to have fun in those tough moments and embrace the the hardships of tennis. Okay, we have three more Meredith, David, Cindy. Good. Hey there Meredith Cash from Insider how are you doing? Good thanks. Um, I wanted to ask about, you know, everyone has spoken about how you've had a great August and you're riding so much momentum coming into this tournament, but obviously expectations come with that, especially because this is your home slam. Mm -hmm. How do you mentally and emotionally handle that and how has that changed over time? Um, I think for me, I, the best way that mindset has changed like throughout as I've grown up, um, but now I'm just going in and I feel confident in my preparation and I feel confident in my execution and I just, you know, hope that, you know, everything works out. But also at the same time, I'm not too worried if it isn't. I'm really just enjoying the process of having a tennis career, the ups and downs. And I know I'm going to, I'm up right now and I know I'm going to experience a down, hopefully not this week, but you know, it could happen. <laughs> I know it's going to happen. It's impossible to stay up all the time, but I think, uh, that's really where the mindset has changed. I think sometimes I'll let a loss get too much into me and I realize that everybody loses even the best of the best. So I, I think that I really have to apply those mistakes and learn from those mistakes and apply it into future matches. So that's really where the mindset has changed. Whereas before I feel like I would think too much on the loss and let that loss affect me for some weeks and now I'm losing uh, a couple matches in a row or not winning consecutive matches. So I think now I'm just doing really well bouncing back. Great. David, that's... 
Hi Coco, David Kane, Tennis.com. You've worked with Barilla for a while, and I'm just curious if you have a favorite pasta shape. Um, Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I really, I guess, uh, depends. For four matches, I just go with penne pasta because I don't like the long pasta when I'm before matches because I'm not the cleanest eater, so I get on my kit. So I do like penne pasta. Uh, but I guess, ooh, other than that, uh, just spaghetti. Like I like uh, cacio e pepe, like the, with the spaghetti shape uh, pasta. So yeah, those are probably my favorites. Lines or without the lines? Oh, um, really? The tournaments, whatever they have, you know, like <laughs> we don't have much choices with lines or out that without lines. And I honestly never really paid attention. Uh, that's the first time I've heard that there was the difference. So I guess now I'm gonna pay attention <laughs> to see if they have lines or not. <laughs> Nowhere to go after that. Cindy. Yeah, I am so not going there. <laughs> Hi, Coco. It's Cindy Schmerler. Uh, six years ago, you lost the junior final to Amanda Anamasova. And she has taken an extended leave from the game and, and now has seems entered college. Wow. Are you surprised by that? And can you understand a player who just, just doesn't want to be out there? Yeah, um, I would say when she announced the initial break, I was surprised. I mean... Um, I don't think anybody was expecting or anything, but I can't understand really. Um, there's probably a lot of players who need to take a break who don't take a break and not putting this for myself and maybe, you know, one day I'll need to take a break. I don't know. Um, but I definitely can understand when tennis has been so much a part of your life and she's been good also. She's been a great player in juniors and obviously in pros doing well. So I think it's a much different pressure when you're, um, you know, good, I guess, throughout pretty much when you hold a racket. I mean, Amanda's always been one to watch, at least since I was a little girl, then obviously uh, since she was, she's always considered to be the next thing. And um, I can really understand the pressure that she's probably felt. And, you know, she had a lot to deal with with the loss of her dad. And some, I think, I'm, I'm don't, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he's she's he started her in tennis. So, um, and I was really surprised personally how she was able to be able to continue to play. And she ended up she beat him beat beating me at Wimbledon um, that I think a year or two after. So I was really amazed how she was able to overcome all of that. So I completely understand, and I think that's a thing that people forget that she's human and athletes are human and you know just because we're professional doesn't mean everybody needs a break from everything and maybe college has always been part of her one of her aspirations I don't know but I think um, as long as she's happy and healthy I think uh, everybody should support her decision okay I could let's uh, next here let's choose a male player to hear from next I play Medvedev, Djokovic, and Alcaraz all the time. Let's go a little bit off the beaten path here. John Isner has announced his retirement this week. The U.S. Open is going to be his final tournament. John Isner is the player solely responsible for the introduction of the fifth set tiebreak in Grand Slams because of his 70-68 match against Mahout and his 24-22 match against Kevin Anderson. So it's not like we're going to hear from John Isner ever again. So uh, for the first and only time in the history of Tripp's Tennis Talk, let's listen to John Isner. Hey, John, it's a, it's not over yet, but yeah. congrats. Uh, Thank you. Just get that out of the way on a, on a great career. I just wanted to ask you about, obviously, for a long stretch, you really carried that burden, so to speak, of 
for American Tennis. I just wondered if you'd talk about what that responsibility was like, what you liked about it, what yeah. what you didn't like about it. You know, I never really, honestly, never felt like it was it was a burden. I, mean, I, I do do know the players uh, before me are all, uh, you know, Hall of Famers. When I, I obviously you talk about Andy Roddick, he, he's in the Hall of Fame, and the guys before him. I don't need to mention their names, but I never felt like I had it was a burden to to be the number one American. I may, maybe because I wasn't like in juniors and through college, I wasn't real spoken about. And so I think in a sense, I sort of came on tour with, with not much pressure on myself because there weren't many expectations for me. And that helped me out a lot. So of course, I mean, I did take pride in being the best I could be. And I always did want to be the number one American. I'd be lying to you if I told you I didn't, but I never felt like there was this huge, enormous uh, burden on me to, to try to get there. Because, um, you know, when I was the top American, you know, to be quite honest with you, American men's tennis wasn't what it was in the 90s or, or, or early 2000s, excuse me. So, but, you know, I, again, I mean, being the top American, I don't know how many years it was, and just maintaining my ranking for a very long time is something... I'm very proud of, and I took great pride in um, the preparation that, that it took day in and day out, year after year after year, something I, I truly, really enjoyed that. Did you get more out of it than you thought you would? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think I've, I've overachieved. Um, I never imagined myself having this much success um, for, for this long, you know, it's, mentioned in one of my statements like of course there's so many matches I wish I could have back but I prepared in my mind as best as I possibly could um, for for 17 years so I've, I don't don't have many regrets that's for sure go Willie Brian Cindy well, Willie, Willie Weinbaum from ESPN thanks John um, you mentioned Andy Roddick what to you is Andy Roddick's legacy on this 20th anniversary of him winning the U.S. Open? I think just how hard he worked. Um, he, I think, would admit, I mean, obviously he was talented. I don't think he was the most talented guy, by any means, but he was an absolute bulldog um, on the court, of course, but off the court and how he trained and how he took care of himself one of the hardest workers I think this sport's ever seen. So, you know, when, I, when I'm in college or in high school and seeing him you know, win the U.S. Open and then come on tour with him and see how hard he worked, it definitely showed me that I, I needed to – I had a long way to go just to try to match him because he was, he was at the top of, you know, top ten forever, top five for a long time too, and he just worked his ass off each and every day. So just watching that for me was, uh, was very inspiring because if I wanted to be uh, a top professional, I knew I had to, you know, at least try to do it, do what he does. Brian. Hey, John. Brian Mooney, Associated Press. Um, Francis got asked that question earlier, and as soon as he heard Andy Roddick 20 years ago, he sort of rolled his head like mm -hmm. he knew what was coming, that the Americans haven't won mm -hmm. since then. Um, did you ever sense that it – took its toll on the guys in your generation having to answer that question so many times and um, just part two we've seen 
lot of players coming back, women from childbirth, some men, Kev yep. Anderson playing. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm certain. <laughs> I uh, can't put out a tweet. My tweet has like 5 million views or something like that, so I'm done. <laughs> so, uh, no, I think it's, I think on the women's side, I think, I think it's very cool and inspirational to see um, some of these women come back after um, becoming mothers. I think that's, that's very unique. But um, on the men's side, it doesn't happen as much as did happen with Kevin, uh, but it, it won't happen with me. About just hearing the 20-year, you know, American not winning a American man not winning a Grand Slam. Did you feel like it took its toll on some of the guys uh, in your countrymen hearing about that? Uh, maybe a little bit. You know, it's it has been a long time. It's the longest stretch this country's ever had for sure. So we'll see. I think American men's tennis is in very good spot right now. So I, I don't. I mean, who who knows? Like that could keep going because the number one player is pretty good and very young. So, but we have a lot of players that that can definitely challenge for for that Grand Slam. I mean, heck, Francis was a set away from being in the finals last year. So, you know, just need things to fall into place for you. That you know, throughout the course of two weeks, and it's, it's definitely possible. But we're in a good spot right now, I think. Cindy. Um, I'm not telling you my name. No. 16 years ago, when you stood on that court in Athens and you led your team to the NCAA championship with your brother drunk and screaming from yeah. the stands, you look back now, and does that seem just a lifetime ago? And can you give us three absolute highlights? And I have to assume one of them involves Nico Mihut. Yeah. No, it actually doesn't seem like like that long ago, which is crazy. I mean, the the, the Wimbledon match doesn't seem like 13 years ago either. So, uh, cause I have such fond memories of my time in, in, in Athens. And I mean, one of my tennis highlights, I think was winning the national championship in 2007. Cause it was in our, you know, our home stadium. And we had like 6,000 fans for a college tennis match, which is pretty unique. And I played Kevin Anderson on court one, which is cool. Cause we've kind of had similar careers, uh, on, in the, in the pro ranks. Um, as you mentioned, the match in 2010, there's no doubt about that. Uh, that was a insane match to be a part of. I, I think when I actually beat Andy Roddick here in 2009, because I'm just answering that question about Andy in the third round in five sets on Arthur Ashe, that was for me a, a pivotal moment in, in my career. To He was top five in the world, I think, and just to be able to to beat him in front of that, you know, in front of the atmosphere on Arthur Ashe Court was was so cool because that's the guy who I, you know, looked up to. Not literally, of course, but, uh, and, you know, be able to do that was fun. But that's also, you know, it was a situation where no pressure was on me, and I was able to, to I guess, capitalize on that. But I've had a lot of great moments, um, a lot of moments not so great. Some awesome moments in Davis Cup. I beat Roger Federer in Switzerland one time. That was cool. Uh, the court was really bad, and bad bounces were everywhere, and he didn't like that. I loved it. So the worse the court, the better for me. Uh, but, you know, I just it's not so much individual matches that stick out. It's just the, the memories I have with, with my friends on tour, and then the last three, four, five years, my family on tour. Um, very special. What do you miss most, John? I, I miss, like... I'm definitely going to miss the, the – mostly I'm going to miss the competition on the match court. 
I I don't think I'm going to miss the the practice because lately it's it's been tough. I haven't been able to train like I'm used to, and nor like should I. It's like it's like it's just when to ramp up my training, when to taper back. Because if I train too hard, my body lately has been sort of breaking down on me. So it's just been tough. I haven't been able to put in the exact same work that I been doing for my whole career because my body hasn't been quite allowing me to so that's what's been difficult I think that's why my results have suffered this year I haven't been fully healthy this year hopefully I am this week but again I mentioned earlier I, I took great pride in preparing and it's not easy to get a body like mine ready to play for 17 consecutive years it's not easy at all so um, that was the part I, I really enjoyed, but all throughout my career, but lately it's become becoming tougher, but certainly the, the atmosphere on some of the matches I've played, I'm going to miss. There's no doubt. There's a question. Bill. Hi, John, David Law from the tennis podcast. Um, a lot of players when they've retired have spoken about a void that they feel mm-hmm. after tennis. You spend yeah, a lot of years playing this sport, having these moments, and in your thirties, it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, are you worried at all? Um, I wouldn't say I'm worried, but I'm not going to sit here and act like it's going to be easy. I think some players might put on a brave face and say, "Oh, they can't wait for retirement." Like, it's not really that. I mean, I I wanted to play this sport as long as I possibly could, but ne- inevitably it was it was going to end. I'm certain there's probably going to be a lot of tough times. You know. Because for the last 17 years, just professionally, I would wake up every morning and just, like, how do I get better? If it's on the practice court or if it's just in the gym or if it's just resting that day. Like, it's just about trying to keep myself going year over year over year. And I'm not going to have that anymore. So there's definitely going to be that void. Fortunately for me, the most important thing is that I got an amazing life at home. So I'm going to lean on my uh, my wife and kids as, as much as I possibly can. Um, to fill that void, but I'm going to need to stay busy because that's just how I'm wired. Um, I can't just be home all the time. Of course, I'm going to be the best dad I, I can possibly be, but I'm going to have to channel my energy elsewhere um, and a- attack some different avenues professionally to, to to keep me going. Well, we'll see. I mean, I don't know how much it's going to be in tennis. I could see myself uh, doing some TV. How much? I don't know. I think I could be okay at it. Maybe not. But I'd like to. I like to certainly give it my best shot. Um, see what I want to do in the in the business world. Where I live right now in Dallas, Texas, is a great place to be. I have a lot of great friends and, and mentors there that can help me out in, in, in that regard. But the key is is going to be to you know to stay busy because that's what's going to keep me you know mentally there. It's going to allow me to be the best father and husband I, I can possibly be. So. Um, I think it, it will be a challenge. I don't pretend it's going to be easy, but um, I am looking forward to it. Okay. Uh, last two questions. Andrew Jones with ESPN Anscape. John, congratulations on his career. When did you know, considering how you've beaten Tommy, beaten Rinky this summer, was so close against Jordan Thompson, so you're still very much competitive and a threat to anyone, when did you know that you've made this decision that you were set in stone and now you have a fall to enjoy your Georgia Bulldogs yeah. going for a third straight national title and, and being yeah. able to be on the sidelines to watch that finally. Yeah. Just your thoughts on, on those things. Yeah, but I think I knew I, – I will say it wasn't like at the beginning of this year. 
Um, I didn't, you know, I knew it could be possible, but I, I did want to play as long as I, I could. If, if my results were, were better this year, I probably wouldn't be speaking to you right now. Uh, but that just hasn't been the case. This year has been tough uh, health-wise. I had a foot thing that just bothered me for a long time. I wasn't able to train really at all, but I was still playing without much practice, and it just wasn't much fun. It just became very uh, laborious for me just trying to get myself healthy and not really being able to do it and competing not quite at 100% for a little bit too long this year. And it's very taxing mentally on me. You know, and then you just you take a few losses here and there, and it just becomes tough, a little bit discouraging. Um, but I, you know, I did know that if it was if I was going to retire this year, it was going to be at this tournament, which which would be amazing. And so I, I would say I really knew about I don't know, maybe right around the French Open time, maybe after the French Open, uh, that it was, this was probably going to be it. And I'm happy with my decision. There's certainly no regrets right now. Okay, last question. Thank you very much. Um, John, uh, real quick, you've had a great career, and your career happens to have overlapped with the invention and advent of social media. Mm -hmm. And in that time, um, I've watched the, 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 the fans and the users go from being friendly interactions with players uh, to becoming less friendly. Yeah. And so I guess what I want to ask you is, is what advice would you give to the young guys out there starting out now when it comes to social media? Well, yeah, I would just probably just just ignore the the hate as as much as you can because we, us professional tennis players, we get it. In the individual sport, we get it after every single match we play. It's really kind of crazy the stuff stuff people can say, but you sort of just have to feel sorry for them because there's most of the time it's people that have lost money on you. It's kind of I kind of chuckle at it. If I choked and they lost money on me, like it kind of makes me smile <laughs> a little bit, but. Uh, but you know that's what social media. It's it's a little. It's obviously we we know it does amazing things for the world. But there's a there's a flip side to it as well. But I think if people just can get face to face with different points of view, most people are are, are civil. But just try not to to respond to that hate and just ignore it as best as possible. It's not easy. Um, there's no doubt about it. But uh, that's just how that's just how it is nowadays. And when you see the messages people write, you just try to delete them quick as you can and just just forget about it um, it's only short term and it's just it stinks that people have to be that way for sure and we just heard from coco goff there now quickly let's give my prediction picks my women's singles quarterfinal picks i have chalk going to the quarterfinals i picked all top eight seeds to make the quarters that's very unusual for me. From the quarterfinals onward, I've got this. Goff D. Sviatek, Rabakina D. Sakari, Pagula over Garcia, Sabalenka beats Jabor. In the semis, I have Goff over Rabakina and Pagula over Sabalenka. In the All-American final, Coco Goff gets her first Grand Slam victory. She beats Jessica Pagula, who's going to make her first ever Grand Slam final. As far as the contour of the women's draw, Goff and Sviantek are on a collision course in the first quarter. That's going to be the story of the early to mid-tournament. 
Rebecca and Sakaria in the second quarter, definitely a weaker quarter. Third quarter with Pagula and Garcia, definitely weaker. And Sabalenka and Jabor in the bottom quarter is stronger. So the top and bottom quarters I would look at if you're uh, following that. Since they play on alternating days, that means that there will not be any slow days in the women's tournament. On the men's side, the bottom half is very weak. Djokovic has a very easy draw. All the intrigue is in the top half, which is going to play on Tuesday. So if you're watching the men's tournament, you're going to watch want to watch on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Monday, Wednesday. Those are going to be the good days. My men's tournament from the quarterfinals onward. Alcaraz over Zverev. Medvedev over Kachanov. Tiafo over Paul. Djokovic over Tsitsipas. Semifinals, I've got three of the top four and Francis Tiafo, so mostly chalk. In the semis, Alcaraz over Medvedev again, and I'm going to have to make another wrap after that match. Djokovic over Tiafo, and in the finals, Novak Djokovic gains revenge from Wimbledon again, preventing Carlos Alcaraz from defending his title. No one's won two in a row since 2008, 15 years, so the odds are not in Alcaraz's favor. I think Djokovic is going to be ready, but we'll see. Let's look at the schedule for Monday. All right. Day one, Monday, August 28th. Let me get it in PDF view. All right. Louis Armstrong Stadium, 11 a.m. start. Victoria Azarenka versus Fiona Farrow. Sloane Stevens versus Beatriz Adad Maya. Steve Johnson versus Taylor Fritz. On the outside courts, let's just take a little gander. Alexander Bublik versus Dominic Thiem. Collins versus Linda Fruvitova. Chris Eubanks plays at 5 o'clock on Grandstand. The popular happy hour slot. Holger Rune is banished to court five. He's the number four seed. That's a little rough. Felix is out there as well. Arthur Ashe Stadium. Twelve. Oh, we should also look at the court 17. Yeah. So court 17, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern. Sakri is up first, then Casper Rude, then Tommy Paul. Then 6 p.m., Kvitova is up. All right, Arthur Ashe Stadium, 12 p.m., local start. Iga Sviantek versus Rebecca Peterson, followed by Francis Tiafo versus Lerner Teen. Your night matches, 7 p.m. on Arthur Ashe Stadium, Coco Goff versus a qualifier. Louis Armstrong Stadium, Stefano Tsitsipas versus Milos Raonic, probably the match of the day for me. Nightcap matches, Arthur Ashe Stadium, Novak Djokovic versus Alexander Muller, and on Armstrong, Carolyn Wozniacki versus a qualifier. Coverage starts 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on all the ESPN platforms that I mentioned earlier. I'm excited for the tournament, but this is a long preview podcast. It's time to wrap it up. 
and it's time to start watching the coverage. If you've made it this far, thank you. Please be sure to check out future episodes. And uh, you've been listening to Trips Tennis Talk, U.S. Open Preview Edition. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon.